Hey coach, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. Let's share the game. Awesome to welcome Sherry Cole back to the Basketball Podcast. Sherry Cole retired from her position as the head coach at the University of Oklahoma, Sooners women's basketball team in 2021, after serving for 25 years. Currently, she is a writer, speaker, and consultant. Cole's book, Rooted to Rise, is a collection of essays about people, and her must-read blog, titled A Way of Life, is available at sherrycole.com. Cole last appeared on episode 28 of the Basketball Podcast. She served as the head coach at the University of Oklahoma Sooners for 25 years. During her tenure, her teams won multiple Big 12 championships, qualified for 19 straight NCAA tournaments, and earned their way into three Final Fours. She had the privilege of coaching four All-Americans, 14 WNBA draft selections, and a whole bunch of remarkable women who reward her still with their lives. In addition to working with Oklahoma, Cole participated in USA Basketball as an assistant coach in 2001 and as a head coach in 2013 World University Games, where her squad defeated Russia on their home floor to bring home the gold. Coach Cole, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's been a while, but I'm happy to be back. It's been a while, but uh, grateful to have you back. And uh, Coach, I mean, I, I mentioned in the intro to others that you've moved on to a different life, writer, speaker, consultant. And what I really liked is that you said when you walked away from basketball coaching, you did so with intention. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think one of the things that made the transition, maybe not easy, but although it felt pretty easy, if I'm being honest, what made the transition as simple as it was, was the fact that I was running towards something. And I think that's essential. I find that people really struggle when they just step off the cliff and don't know where they're going. And I had always been that girl that had, I wanted 37 lives. There was all this stuff that I wanted to do. I just happened to have, have had this amazing job at the University of Oklahoma. So you don't just go, oh, I don't think I want to do this anymore. You do it for a really, really long time until the passion that's in your pocket is screaming a little bit louder than what you're doing every day. And then you kind of got to listen to it. And I, I think COVID really helped with that too. It quieted the world and I could hear some things and see some things and make some decisions based on perspective that is not um, easy to access when you're in the grind every single day. So I felt fortunate uh, to have that, but I had always wanted to write uh, in my life before I was a head college basketball coach. I was a high school basketball coach and an English teacher and had been a lifelong writer until probably the last, I don't know, eight, six, eight years of my coaching career, because with the insurgence of social media, you felt like you felt like you needed to be reaching out to people all the time. And so I sort of traded that off and I can't blame the world for that. I chose that, but but I traded that off for writing time. And I found during COVID that I'd really, really miss that. And we won't get into the other 36 lives then or 35 <laughs> lives, but obviously I can relate to that completely. And people ask me all the time about leaving coaching and, you know, certainly you miss parts of it, but truly, again, you just move on to something else when you have a purpose. And that's really been the beautiful thing about what you've done, right? You've moved immediately into a purpose where you won't miss it as much because you're doing something that you value. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Chris. The other thing is, I, I don't know if coaches always realize how much of a skill set they have to offer the world. Coaching creates this wide, broad spectrum 
of skills. You can do all kinds of things because you have to do all kinds of things. And it's a great career to be able to parlay into other careers because you have a lot of experience in different types of activities and in different circumstances and with different types of people. It's just a, a very diversified profession. So you come out of that with a wide range of skill sets. And I, I don't think that a day goes by in which I don't use my coaching background. Such a great point. I'm glad you connected that for us. And, you know, Rooted to Rise, I had a chance to read it, tremendous writing within it. But uh, what inspired you to write it? And what message were you hoping readers would take away from it? You know, that's a great question. I wish I had a better answer, but I'm going to tell you the real answer. <laughs> when COVID hit, our our sports information director asked me if I would write a piece for the website because all eyes were focused on Soonersports.com in a way that they'd never been before because everybody's sitting at home with nothing to do, except that Soonersports.com covered sports and there were no sports. So they had no content. So it was just this big abyss, if you will. And he knew that I loved to write. And so he asked if I would write an article. And so I sat down and, and started writing about the things that I was mourning for my players and, and for myself and for all athletes and coaches, for all people, really. We were all experiencing it just from an athletic lens as the direction I came from. And I realized when I cleaned that up and revised and revised, I'd be staying up for, you know, hours at night working on it and not be tired. And I wake up the next morning, I couldn't wait to go work on it a little bit more. And when I polished it and revised it and sent it into him, I realized, man, I have missed that. And one day, honest, true story, walking down the entryway of my house, I have windows on each side of my home. We've lived here for um, over 30 years now. And it was about 9.30 in the morning, lights coming through the uh, east side of the house just beautifully. And I stopped in the entryway and I was like, wow, I love this house. And I took a couple more steps and I thought, I have lived here for 30 years. Why is this just now dawning on me? And I thought, I've never seen the light come through those windows at 9.30 in the morning because I've never been here at 9.30 in the morning. And it was a big aha moment. I didn't go call my athletic director right then. I didn't run and tell my husband or my kids. But internally, it was a big shift for me. And I thought, I, I, I like that feeling that I had sitting up till two in the morning writing. And I want more of that. And so I began to write during that final season that was very disjointed when you couldn't go to recruit or anything. Uh, I would spend that the excess time writing. And so what happened with Rooted to Rise was just what came out. I didn't sit down with the plan and say, I want to write a book. I just sat down and started writing. And what came out were these stories about people who had impacted my life. And I looked down and I had about 25 of them. And I thought, this might be something. And so I sent it to a literary agent and asked her, is this anything? And she said, I think it might be something. And I said, okay. And I kept writing. And what actually ended up being the result of it was this giant gratitude letter to people who had impacted my life and who are responsible for how I do life. And it was an awesome experience. So much joy and peace and gratitude involved in that experience. And again, not intentional in terms of topic, but intentional in terms of time spent working on it, for sure. That's a beautiful story. And I'm familiar a little bit, and those that listen to episode 28 of the Basketball Podcast are familiar with your teaching methodology a little bit. So I'm curious when you said that about 
not necessarily having this plan, but trusting a process a little bit. Is that similar to how you coach in terms of you don't go in predetermining all the answers in advance, but you have an idea of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to accomplish? No question. I think that's why I loved motion offense so much, Chris. There's just so much room for artistic improvisation. There's just, you know, it can get better and better and better based upon the knowledge and the understanding of the players and the connection of the players on the floor. I love that creative process that you're not trying to do a color by number. You're you're you have a blank canvas and you can you can make it anything you want to make it. And I sort of approached the writing that way. And I still sort of do that. You know, I do a weekly blog every Tuesday I post and people ask me, do you ever like get stuck and you don't have anything to write about? And sure, absolutely. But I, I just have done it enough that I know if I sit there enough and I write enough sentences down, eventually I'm going to get to something that piques my curiosity. And that's really what writing is. It's exploration. You're, you're trying to figure out what you really think about something or how you really feel about something. And you just, you sit in the chair. And I've said this repeatedly that while it may seem like the opposite end of the spectrum from athletics, a writing world feels from the outside looking in kind of nerdy, you know, and this is not anything an athlete would do, but the process is incredibly similar. I get up every day and I open up my laptop and I start to write. And some days it's good. I write and write and write and write. And some days it's awful. And after about two hours, I hit delete on everything that I wrote. It's the same way with becoming a great basketball player. You you go to the gym every day. You go. And some days it feels like butter coming out of your hand. And some days it feels like a square. And that's just part of the creative process. I think it's part of getting good at anything, actually. And that a commitment to the grind, if you will, as an athlete and as a coach has served me beautifully in this new foray. Well, I, maybe we should have gave a disclaimer at the beginning that even though we're going to talk about writing, we're really talking about coaching. And that's really <laughs> what you've connected for us so far. And I do want to deep, deep dive into your writing process because I think it does connect so much. And a young coach, an old coach listens to this. They can appreciate the process of coaching and the process of writing because those things are so, so similar. The other part that rooted to rise that really stood out to me is the importance of foundations. How does this translate for you? Well, I, I when I wrote the book, I wrote, as I said, all these stories. And I really didn't have a way that they all fit together until I was having a conversation with a thinking partner at Scribe. And she asked me what the common thread might be. And I'm thinking back through the stories and, you know, there are those, those big word common threads, you know, of, of connection or loyalty or integrity or whatever those words might be, those big fluffy words that we can't really put our arms around sometimes. And I said, you know, really what it is, is it's like I told my team at the start of every year and I said to local Rotary and Chamber of Commerce and all those dinners you go to in your community and surrounding communities to try to talk about your basketball team. I would always tell the story of the Redwood Tree, that in order for us to reach as tall as we could possibly reach and and to be as strong as we could possibly be, especially in times of adversity, we didn't need to dig down as much as we needed to reach out and wrap around each other. And so that whole metaphor of wrapping around your roots, wrap around each other to hold one another up. When I told that to my thinking partner at Scribe, she said, well, there's your theme. There's your 
connection. And I went to bed that night, woke up the next morning, completely reorganized the stories, created the parts and tied it all to the metaphor of the redwood tree. It just made sense. But that is the foundational element, you know, for for me to be able to do the things that I have been able to do in my lifetime. There had to be people at the start who were ingraining disciplines and core values and creating environments where I could win and lose and be really good and follow my face and uh, do things that I was pretty good at and do things that I wasn't very good at at all. I had all those environments and all these people along the way who I really just felt like when I looked back on it all, God just planted these people along the road and I got to run into them and lucky, lucky me. So I began to write about that, but writing about those people made me think about how deeply embedded they are in the way that I do life. And as we sort of segue that into basketball, you know, the first thing we ever taught day one, even in college, people say in college, you did that. Even in college was triple threat, catch the ball in triple threat and be able to, to shoot it, drive it or pass it immediately based upon the trigger read of your defender. And that was the, that was the foundation of what we did when we began to, to work on motion offense. The foundation was the basket cut. People were like, everybody knows how to cut to the basket. No, they really don't. And surely they don't practice it like they should. And so that was a big part of 2 on 0 passing and cutting and recreating space. Those things had to be in place so that when we got that blank canvas for our motion offense, we had some, some ability to paint it in the way we wanted it to be. But without those fundamental pieces, never could we have created anything that was going to lead to success. We both do some consulting work, uh, I assume, with some colleges you work with. And the way you just described your work with your writing partner at Scribed kind of struck me as a lot of what I do in terms of consulting, where it's like that coach is t talking to me about a whole bunch of things. And really, I'm holding space to be able to help them to come up with their own solution or to co-create that solution. And I think that was just a beautiful example that illustrated a lot of the work that I'm sure you do with consulting as well. No question. You just hit the nail on the head and you have to fight at the beginning, this urge where you're thinking, I didn't really do anything there. Like, what did I do? I didn't because we don't <laughs> yeah. we're not supplying a solution. And I, I remember stubbing my toe on that when I began to transition in my career from being such a telling coach to an asking coach. I remember thinking, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm not adding any value here. And you learn at, through the process of it all that holding that space for someone to, sometimes for a coach, they just need to vomit in a safe place. They really do. That's a big part of it. But it's amazing how when we articulate what it is that is challenging us or the impediment that's out there, how we can find our own way through it. But we need a good, safe listener where we can dislodge all of that so that we can untangle it and find our way through. And so asking, just like asking players, tell me why you went there. Those open-ended questions are so important in the consulting world. And coaches now more than ever need thinking partners. They need safe places to go. They need people who understand the challenges. People outside of the athletic world think they understand what's going on in there. Unless you've sat in that chair, woo. <laughs> it's different. And so to have that like experience, I think, is very helpful for coaches.
from a telling coach to an asking coach. I just want coaches to have heard that again. So coach, can you talk a little bit more about that process? Yeah, I was a really good teller. <laughs> As I think most coaches are, you know, put your hand here, put your other hand here, put your finger in your ear, you know, bend your knees, toe and step relationship, all that stuff. And a certain amount of that is very, very important when you're teaching a skill and, and making that foundation that we just discussed earlier. There has to be an element of that for sure. But the quicker you can move from that phase of teaching to the asking phase, the deeper the understanding of the athlete and the higher the ceiling for her performance. There is no doubt in my mind that that's the way to do it. As a teacher in a classroom, when you ask questions, players have to, or, or students have to think. They have to think about what, so they're, they're working, they're not taking in and regurgitating. And I tell a story in Rooted to Rise about my Shakespeare professor who was one of my favorite instructors of all time. And I don't remember him ever telling us anything. I'm sure he did at some point, but what I remember is him throwing out these questions that made me just go, hmm, I don't know. And I kind of stare at the wall for a bit and think about it and we'd answer and he wouldn't tell us, oh, that's great, or you're right, or, or that's not right. He would just go, hmm, tell me more about that. And I would walk away and think he's the smartest person I ever met in my life. Oh my God, I learned so much today. But what he did was he opened up the inside of all of us so that we could find our way. And a couple of things happen when you find your own way. Number one, you build these muscles to be able to find your way again. But number two, you remember it forever. And you don't, when someone pours it in and you regurgitate it out, you forget it pretty quickly. When you have to find it for yourself, it sticks. And so it's an uncomfortable process. I think as a coach, I sure I went through at least one season where I'm sure I was just like, so what did you see? You know, trying to figure out the right way to phrase it and, and in an open-ended manner that would challenge them to think. And you get better at it the more you do it, like anything. You just do it and then it becomes second nature and it's comfortable. And the cool thing is after you do it for a while, they start to do it with one another and back to you which is the greatest thing ever. Like, Coach, why, why did we do that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you. So you, you engage in these conversations that are about when and where and how and why. All of those things, rather than just the what. It, it, it's all those things, which is what the game of basketball requires. Because every second is different. No matter how many times you practice a layup, you don't hardly ever get that same layup twice in your whole lifetime. It's different every time because you're running or the ball's arriving here or there, or a defender's coming. So that ability to adapt to situations and uh, think on your feet and be willing to sort of nudge your way through situations, that, that's what you're training as much as the skill. I love teach, or talking about the teaching process with you. It's just always been a treat to be able to hear you talk about it or to talk to you about it. Because one of the main reasons is that when you talk about teaching, what you're really focused on more than anything is learning. And that's really the test. It's not about teaching. It's about whether they can learn. And that example of your professor there, the thing that struck me that so many coaches do and can improve at is that he didn't take away your opportunity for self-discovery. And that self-discovery leads to retention. 
which is ultimately, as you said, the goal. Just a beautiful, beautiful story, coach. And I know we'll talk about teaching and learning. You just said it way better than I did. It leads to self-discovery. Absolutely, that's what it does. (laughs) Well, that's why we're doing, we're co-creating this together and it's beautiful. (laughs) Coach, we're going to come back to the book. We're going to come back to writing and and inevitably coaching and teaching and learning. But something I really want to get to, because I think this is another part, just like a coach trying to decide about stepping away from coaching, like you talked about before, it's also this process. You you mentioned it that you have two kids who like each other and you and your husband still. And that's such a beautiful way of saying it. And this is the goal, I'm sure, for, for every coach who has a family, of course. So can you shed some light on how you navigated and achieved this? A lot of help. Had a lot of help. I was very, very fortunate in that my grandmother moved in with us and we built her a bedroom and bathroom uh, when I got the job at the University of Oklahoma. So I had a toddler. Colton was three, almost four. And Chandler was born two weeks after I got the job at Oklahoma. So after that summer, she moved in with us and was like a nanny, which was, I mean, like, how did I get so lucky for that to happen? So my kids were able to have a pretty normal life, even though I was flying here and there and getting home at all hours and leaving at all hours, they were able to have a routine and go to bed and take their bath and read bedtime stories and all of that, even if I couldn't be here to facilitate that. But I think one of the one of the things that was a constant throughout that 25-year coaching career is that my kids always understood exactly where I was and what I was doing. Even when I was gone a lot, there was a comfort level in that because they had been in my office, they'd been in my practice gym, they traveled sometimes. I took them recruiting a lot, especially when they were really young. And there were some, obviously some challenges with that. It made it a lot harder, but it really helped them in a number of ways. I mean, it it, it helped them understand where I was and what I was doing, but it also introduced them to a lot of things that they wouldn't have had an opportunity to experience any other way, whether it's different parts of the country or being around different people or different settings. They had to learn a lot when they were really young. And the results of that, um, the, what's left, the remnants of that has been really, really good, really positive. But I think it's so important in a high profile coaching position, particularly, that we're the same person all the time. My daughter used to say when we would go to the mall, back to school shopping, she'd say, wear a ball cap and don't talk because people would recognize my voice. And so we would go back to school shopping and I would be the same person just in a little bit incognito outfit, but I was her mom wherever I was, on the sideline or at Dillard's or in our house. And I think that's super important for kids. I got lucky because they had my grandmother's influence. My husband's fantastic. He's the opposite of me, super chill and and kind of keeps everything moving along while I'm flying up here and nosediving down there. My mother uh, was really close and was able to help with the kids a lot. And then we had friends and I had this built-in network because I had coached at Norman High School. I lived in this community. And so I had this church family and this built-in network of people who could help. And I think sometimes, you know, you get a job and it's across the country and you have two little ones and you know no one. And that's so, so hard. So I had I had a head start in that regard. But, you know, just trying to make sure through the years that uh, what they did was every bit as important, if not more so than what I was doing. Uh, That didn't mean 
you know, I couldn't not coach against Texas because my six-year-old had a soccer game, but it meant unless it was something that I could not get out of like a game, then I would be there. So I was rearranging recruiting trips and practice times based on my family to a great degree because I really wanted them to know that they were first. And that and us just going through it all together has created this really cool dynamic now that my kids are adults. They're people that I love to be around. We're super close and share a love of of athletic competition. And uh, my daughter-in-law used to play for me. So that's a really cool thing. So my my granddaughter's mom was my point guard. So that she will get a kick out of telling her that someday when she is old enough to understand. So it's just been it's just been really good. And I think the world of coaching, if kids are playing paying attention, their parents are in it and they're paying attention, you can teach them a lot about how to lose and how to handle failure and handle success, which is sometimes just as hard to handle as losing is how to treat people and people that can't do anything for you. There are all kinds of sermons that we're living out every single day. And the coaching world presents a lot of teaching moments for little kids watching their parents. Well, something we all aspire to for sure is that our kids still like us after our job is over because they'll still be there. The job's gone, but the kids will still be there. It's beautiful, coach. And uh, you, you mentioned like sharing some of these stories in these teachable moments with your with your kids. I'm curious then, when you coached, was was storytelling a big part of the way that you conveyed information to your players? You know, I this makes me laugh sometimes, Chris. Uh, it's a great question. It's really vogue right now to be a storyteller. Uh, people really like to hear that phrase. And, and there's a lot of people who actually make a living teaching people how to tell stories, which is super interesting to me because as a coach, you tell a story every single day. I told a story before every practice. I told a story after every practice. I told a story at every single team meeting. I told a story at halftime. I told a story after the game. That's what you do is you create this narrative that people can be themselves along. And I'm just always just kind of shocked at the revelation that people have that storytelling sticks. If, If as coaches, we stand in front of our team and talk about numbers and stats and angles as important as they may be for moving the ball and helping on defense and all those things, we have to put it in a context that will allow them to remember it and relate to it. And stories do that. Stories stick. And so you learn as a coach at camp and as a coach of a a team, both at high school and at college, to tell stories, to help them remember and help them stay engaged. And then you tell stories to your fan base and it it just continues. There's just a ripple after a ripple after a ripple. It's what you do. Coaches, a brief interruption from the podcast to talk about Hoopsalytics. With basketball season approaching quickly, do you have an affordable, powerful stats and analytics system in place yet? Rather than overspending on the same old antiquated stat system, you can get cutting-edge video link stats and deep analytics at around half the price you're paying now. Hoopsalytics analysts will break down games for you so you can instantly measure the effectiveness of your players, lineups, and player combinations. And you can add tracking for your unique plays, sets, and actions to see what's working and what needs to be improved. You can even measure shot quality and things like contested and uncontested shots to improve your offensive points per possession. 
Features like interactive shot charts, game timeline visualizations, assist maps, and more makes Hoopsalytics an invaluable resource for coaches of all levels. Discover how Hoopsalytics can help you save money and make better data-driven coaching decisions. Visit hoopsalytics.com ball today to learn more and start analyzing your game for free. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com slash ball. Speaking of stories, and this may be my bias as a coach, but so many of your stories with the blog and in the book as well, I mean, they seem to focus on resilience and overcoming challenges. And it's what, what struck me is it's not always about big victories. Like a lot of your stories aren't about big victories. Some of them are just about small victories. But I'm just curious, is that conscious on your part that a lot of the stories and a lot of the blogs that you share do focus on kind of sharing some stories of resilience and overcoming challenges? No, but I think anybody who's living and walking and breathing on this planet faces way more of those every single day than the big ones. You, you They're just every single day you have all these tiny wins and all these little losses and we tend to think as as people, we tend to hone in and remember those tough times, those losses a little bit more than we do the the wins. And there's so much to learn from there. And so there's never there's there's never a, a gap. There's not you you don't the well is never dry there because we're constantly tripping over something and running into a wall and and um, feeling stuck somewhere. And so those stories never ever get old. We all face them constantly every single day. Well, you mentioned being stuck in your writing and certainly in coaching, we get stuck all the time. So any advice or any kind of stories that you can share about getting unstuck, whether it's writing or coaching? Because I think, again, a lot of coaches get bogged down in those moments. Oh, there's no doubt I did as a coach. Uh, No doubt. On the outside looking in, I'm thinking, why did I just sit there and spin my tires and get deeper and deeper and deeper in the mud? Why didn't I do something else? Because at the time when you're there, it's really, really hard to see that you have any other options. It's the craziest thing. And I, I talk about that with coaches that I work with, that one of the the advantages I have is that I can see more than they can. Because when you're in the middle of it, you're looking through a straw and they can't see other things. They don't even know what those other options might be. So I'm there to throw out things. Hey, how about this? How about that? Have you thought about looking over here, or looking over there? And not that the, they should do any of those things, but that those things might stimulate thinking and get them outside of the straw. For writers, a really real thing is changing your location. I, I cannot tell you. I have different spots in my house where I write. Some people are desk sitters. Some people have a writing chair. Some people have a corner. I write all over the house and in the backyard. I have spots everywhere where I like to go to write. But occasionally when I've been stuck, I'll go somewhere in town, go to a coffee shop, go to a corner. And it's amazing how differently the information flows. So doing something different, getting up and going for a walk um, for a coach, going for a workout, listening to a different playlist than the one you ordinarily listen to, grabbing a book from your shelf and reading a random two to three pages around something you may have highlighted changing your location. If you're writing your practice plan, you're sitting at your desk, go down and and sit in the player's lounge or go down and sit on the corner of the practice floor and find a different perspective. Environment matters, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Environment really does influence. And so 
that's one piece of it. Another piece would be have a conversation. I've found that public speaking fuels my writing, not because I go home and write about anything that happened while I was speaking, but the human energy, just the exchange and the dialogue and the conversations, those stimulate thoughts, even when you don't realize that they are, and it'll happen 24, 48 hours later. But picking up the phone and calling somebody or going down and going to somebody's office or taking somebody to lunch. And to coaches, I would say, get outside of your sport, particularly. If you can, get outside of athletics entirely and go talk to somebody who runs flower shop, doesn't have any idea about what you do. You'll find more space for stimulation there. But it's, if you can't, if you, don't, if you don't have a wide net to cast outside of the athletic world, if you're a basketball coach, get out of basketball. Go talk to the soccer coach for a little bit or go watch football practice. You'd be amazed at how many ideas will come to you when you're watching a football coach try to orchestrate 120 guys at once when you got 15 in your gym. There are all kinds of ideas that pop up. So I think interaction with other people and getting that thought stimulation is super important. And sometimes the best thing to do is just walk away. You know, just walk away. I have a friend who, when I'm stuck and I call him, he'll say, walk away. And I, oh, it makes me so mad because I don't want to walk away. I want to finish it. But it's always better when I come back to it. And I wish I had had someone when I was coaching to say, walk away. Do not watch five more minutes of film. Do not have one more team meeting. Walk away. <laughs> We just need to give ourselves room to breathe sometimes. Such great advice. I mean, as coaches, we do tend to think that we can outwork the problem, but then we don't allow space for it to happen, to let it happen. And that's sometimes the case. But coach, you said something there that I really want to dive deeper into because you mentioned this human interaction that helps us get unstuck or to get new ideas or to become more creative. And I'm imagining for you that a lot of that comes from the questions people ask the curiosity of people that you interact with stimulates so much thinking. So can you give us some examples of the different types of questions that you've been asked throughout your career that have kind of stimulated you to think differently? Well, in the last three years, if I had a dollar for every time I've been asked if I missed coaching, then <laughs> I would be incredibly wealthy. Through the years, I think if if I were to just kind of lump them into categories, lots of questions from moms about how to work and balance raising kids and having time for yourself and just how to, there's no, really no such thing as work-life balance. It's such a vogue term. That's, that's not a, that's not a thing. There's a, a way that you choose to live that integrates those things. And I don't know that the word balance is the appropriate one ever to use in that context. From a basketball standpoint, lots of questions about team building uh, about how to get uh, players to connect to one another, buy into the system, uh, be a part of the environment. I'll use that word instead of culture because I'm really tired of that culture word. But I, I think that connection piece is is often one that that coaches ask. And then from a technical standpoint, it, it, it's all, it's almost always about motion offense, about you know how to how to how to teach it, how to control it without controlling it how to get players to want to play that way, to buy into playing that way, those kinds of questions. And so, you know, I mean, obviously lots of different ones through the years, but my my favorite ones 
always have to do with questions that make me stretch outside of, I know why I, I, I wanted to run motion offense and I can tell somebody how I taught it and that th- those are in there. But the ones who, the questions that ask, why did your, why did you have your spacing in the corners and instead of up high uh, off the slot? And you got to think through, okay, here's why I chose to do that. And that's one of my favorite things, Chris, kind of off topic, maybe adjacent, but coaches clinics through the years, you know, people would, and I don't even know that people even go to them anymore because they can get online and get so much that they need, but talk about that human interaction and that exchange in coaches clinics. The best part of a coaches clinic is who you sit next to so that you can have a conversation about what whoever's on the floor just did. And it makes you think about why you do what you do and sometimes why you should change it and sometimes why you should not change it because it's what you really believe. But that process of having to dig through it and think about what you really do believe, what is what is your philosophy? Why do you do what you do? Is there another way, et cetera? That's where the learning comes from. And coaches, you know, would, would want, I'll never forget after our first trip to the final four, we we beat Purdue on their home floor for an opportunity to go to the Sweet 16. And it wasn't first final four, it was our first NCAA tournament. And we have the opportunity to go to the Sweet 16. And we're behind the whole game, late in the game. We call timeout. We have a chance to go ahead. I call this great play because they've been switching. And I'm like, we're going to get a mismatch and get Stacey Dales at the block. And this is, you know, boom. And they didn't switch. And so this wonderful play that I had designed didn't work. And Stacey took the ball in the middle of the floor. And Lanisha Caulfield ran high on the wing and showed a big fist and ran a back cut. And Stacey dropped a bounce pass down. And and Nish attempted a layup and got crashed by two Purdue players, went to the free throw line, made two free throws, and we took our first lead and we won to go to the Sweet 16. But I got so many emails and phone calls about that play that we ran. Everybody wanted that play that we ran at the end. And I was like, wasn't a play. They just, they knew how to play and they played. But people always think there's a shortcut. There is no shortcut. The play that works, you know, for Brad Stevens or works for Steve Kerr or, you know, works for Tom Izzo, may or may not work for you. Who knows? It's time and it, it's it's the players that you have and the time that you choose to run it and the situation and what the other team does. The hard stuff is the the big picture teaching and why you do what you do and how you go about that and teaching players the win. That's W-H-E-N, not W-I-N. Those are the important things. And coaches like people in the world, they want a, they want a shortcut. They want a hack. And there is no hack. So the best questions are things that uh, I'm not sure I know the answer to. I like those best. Love that. And Stacey Dale is a great Brockville, Ontario, Thousand Islands product. And man, I coached against her when I coached varsity girls. So Did that's, you really? Yes. Yeah, we coached. I coached against her and she was a problem. She was a problem. She was I was really then. glad she was on my team. I'll, oh, I'll no doubt. That. She was tremendous. She'd solve a lot of those play uh, problems, wouldn't she? For sure. And that's the beauty of it. You've talked about that, the creativity. And just as a, a, the coaching clinic thing, yeah, I mean, coach clinics have definitely gone down in terms of the numbers, but uh, I had a chance to go back to the Florida clinic, which I know you've had a chance to be at. And uh, I was sitting beside Ben McCollum for the whole morning. And you talk about the experience of just being beside someone to be able to interact with the material and to be able to ask each other questions. It was just an amazing experience. I'm wondering, has there been a favorite in your time of someone that you've got a chance to sit beside and ask questions? 
That is a, that's a great question. I actually have three that popped in my mind while you were talking. Um, one year at the Florida clinic, uh, I was sitting beside Sam Presti mm -hmm. and he had just taken over the Oklahoma city franchise. And uh, well, it had been a few years, but, but he was still new uh, to the, to the NBA world. And he's just taking notes voraciously. Okay. He he's, he's not on the court. He doesn't do anything in practice. He's taking notes voraciously. And so at a break, I asked him, I said, I am just super curious. Like, what, what are you writing down? You know, because I don't think you're going to go back. And I don't even remember. I think Scott was here then. It was before Billy, obviously. But I, I said, you're not going to go tell him, you know, we think, I think you should change your spacing to look like this. And he's like, no, 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 no. He said, I write down everything that I can think of that has some sort of indirect application to what I do. And everything in coaching is about decision-making. And what I do is I make decisions all day long. So this helps me build the breadth of my thinking for those decisions. And I was just like, wow. You know, you've, you've, you have long heard, and I used to tell my kids all the time, my players and kids, they're interchangeable there, all my sets of kids. <laughs> I used to tell them all the time that the one thing that the world's most successful people all have in common is that they take notes voraciously. So don't wait for the teacher to tell you this is going to be on the test. You should write it down. You take notes, take notes at church, take notes wherever you are. You're going to retain more and who knows what you're going to learn that you might not have if you're otherwise engaged. So I was not surprised that Sam was taking notes, but I, I was super intrigued by the lens he took the information in through. Second favorite person to sit by also happened at the Florida clinic because I was sitting next to Eric Spolstra and he is, I mean, he might be the best in the business. I hate to put people up against one another. I think Mark Dagnalt at the Thunder is pretty darn good, but the way Spo looks at the game and thinks about it and then how he talks about it and how he talked about it with me, who I am women's coach at the University of Oklahoma. He's never heard of me. And he's having this high level conversation about X's and O's and what goes underneath those X's and O's with me as though I were Phil Jackson. I mean, he's just has that sort of he sheds that sort of respectful light on everyone that he encounters. And I probably learned as much about his way as I did from the, the questions. It does not surprise me that he can reach some of the most talented athletes in the world because of of that energy that he puts off excuse me <laughs> third one would be as a young coach nike used to take us on coaching clinics coaches trips i should say in the summer and some of the coaches would gather in the evening and talk hoops and some coaches would go play poker and some would go with their spouses or whatever the first one that i went to dean smith hubie brown I could just go down the list of name drop after name drop after name drop. I didn't ever ask a word. I didn't ask a question. I just sat in the back and took notes. I'm This is fresh on my mind because when I was cleaning out some boxes from storage from the university to my house, I came across these notes and it was on a Carmel Valley Ranch notepad. I probably had gone through three of those pads. I pulled all these and categorize them and put them in paper clips from just listening to Teresa Grants and Rennie Portland and 
QB and uh, talk back and forth and debate basketball. Debbie Ryan, Gino, there's a whole group of folks there. But I have all these huge snacks of stacks of notes from Carmel Valley Ranch from just listening and trying to pull in nuggets. And out of those notes, I maybe used, I don't know, four or five different things. But wow, solid gold to have those opportunities. And what you build are those relationships, you know, something's going on during season and you need to call somebody, call Debbie Ryan. You know, you build those connections and those friendships for that some person who knows what it feels like to be where you are right now. Those examples are just gold, Coach. And I can tell you, first of all, Eric Spolstra does know who you are because he listens to the podcast. So, <laughs> And then secondly, what struck, struck me, I mean, I've had a chance to be around Sam Presti, Eric Spolstra. I haven't been around Debbie Ryan or Dean Smith, but it, it strikes me that people like that, that they would think that they're just, you know, people that are there to share. But what struck me about being around a lot of people like that at that level is how many great questions they ask. Oh, no question. No question. And someone like me, they're asking questions. And I'm just like, that always stood out to me as just coaches need to ask more questions. I remember when uh, Billy asked me to do a clinic at that Florida clinic to do a presentation. And Spo was one of the ones asking me questions while I was teaching. And I was just like, uh, you know, you have to go, whoo, forget who it is for a second and feel the question and respond. Uh, but I think that that's to that innate curiosity that great coaches have to have, not only to relate to their players, maybe first and foremost, to be able to relate to their players, but to be able to solve problems on the fly because this game is so fast. You don't get to huddle up between every possession. It's fast and you have to be able to solve problems. And that means most obviously looking at things in different ways and asking questions enables you to do that. Well, it, it struck me too that you said like, you know, I took all these notes and I only used a few of these things, but, but again, you don't know when you're going to need any of those things. And that's the beauty of taking those notes, isn't it? I think what those notes did for me more than anything was they just stretched the breadth and width of my thinking. It's just like if I had this little fence around my thoughts about the game or my thoughts about coaching, it just... It got bigger and broader and wider, which gave me more room to search on my own and do that self-discovery thing you spoke of earlier. There's more room to romp and play now because those boundaries had been pushed out. And some of their concepts would be would run absolutely perpendicular to one another. One coach would say this, one coach would say that, and there would be this conversation uh, about uh, why they do what they do. And then I got to decide which side I kind of lean toward. And I would say that at different times in my career, I leaned one direction and at different times I leaned the other. And because I think we do morph depending on the game morphs. So depending on our talent and and the league that we're playing in and our level of competition, all those things factor in to a lot of those technical decisions. And the more you can be exposed to, the more choices you have. I think you'll be on board with this challenge to coaches. But coaches, if you ever come watch Coach Cole or myself in a clinic, Please bring a notebook. I am st I am just shocked, Coach, how many clinics I've done over the last 10 years, five years, you know, sometimes a two-hour player development session combined with a coaching clinic, and I see coaches just sitting there the whole time with no method of recalling or retaining or discussing or interacting with the material. And it's not about me. It's about them getting something, whether they hate it, they like it, something out of it. So is that an okay challenge to include you in, Coach? It's a fantastic challenge. And 
Uh, the other thing I would say is, and I think there's research out there to back this up. I am not, I don't have it at my fingertips, so I can't, I can't provide the proof right now. But there is research that writing things down embeds it within you. So it's not the same to take a picture with your phone. It doesn't do the same thing. That writing process, I can still see so many of my notes that I took at clinics where I would jot down in the margins. Um, I'll tell you a, a real quick story that's kind of cool. I, through a friend of a friend, uh, was connected with Herb Livesay, and uh, I've never met Herb before. But in my theory of coaching basketball class that I took in college under Dan Hayes, he was teaching us about, you know, going through the curriculum of, of the fundamentals of, of basketball coaching 101. And he kept referring to Livesay, Livesay, Livesay. And I had written in the margin, find Herb Livesay. <laughs> I can still see it as plain as day. And when I got connected with him through the book, someone had sent the book to them and he to him and he reached out via email. We connected. I told him that story. I said, I, I never found you <laughs> until I was on the other side of the coaching career, but we've finally found each other. I can see in my theory of coaching basketball notebook that you had to turn in at the end of the year in the margin where I had written, find him. And it's those kinds of things when you're taking notes in a class or at a clinic and you write down a little reminder to yourself on the side, or I used to put a big question mark out beside something if I didn't really understand the drill that I was drawing up at a clinic. And then I would follow up with that coach afterward to fill in the gaps of that particular drill. You don't remember to do all that stuff if you're just taking it in through your ears or even through your phone. Writing it down provides learning on multiple levels. So I would advise the old school way, a pen and a notebook. I love it. And let me add some research to that, because as you're saying, at least coaches think I memorize this. I remember the research. I don't remember who did it and where it came from, but it was called the pause recall method of learning which is essentially that, say, a professor in a lecture talks for some amount of time, 15, 10, 20 minutes, not longer, and then they pause for two minutes. So you don't take notes during that 15, 20 minutes. You write down stuff when mm -hmm. they pause for two minutes because it forces you to engage with the material. And as you know, Coach, that's retrieval practice that leads to retention. And I just looked it up. I mean, it was there's a bunch of studies on pause recall method, but you know, some of it, I think the original one that I saw was using the pause procedure to enhance lecture recall as 1987. So it would have gone back towards my master's and stuff like that. But why not? Let's add some research to it, coach, a challenge and some other stuff. You and I can geek out on this all the time, can't we? <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> uh, I love that. I love the curiosity with which you approach it with and, uh, you know, all the different things. And I do want to ask this because you've said the greatest gift you can give someone is an opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about that and uh, maybe an example that kind of brings that home? Well, you know, in the world of coaching, we have players who uh, all they want is an opportunity. And I think what you teach as much as anything is that Every single second of every single day is an opportunity. It's how we look at it. And for players, uh, you know, practice is an opportunity. So is the weight room. So is watching film. There are all kinds of opportunities that stack up. It's not just the two minutes you get to go in a game or the five minutes or the 30 minutes or whatever it is you play. And so I, I think the, the learning, helping young people 
learn to see opportunity everywhere because it is there. That's, I think, part of our our charge as coaches. And uh, when you ask me about a specific example, I don't know that an immediate one comes to mind, but I I, I can say that uh, and I think of, of my children in this this respect that sometimes you create opportunities where they don't necessarily look like they're there, like the 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 door that's not a door. It looks like a wall, but it's really a door. If you mess around with the for a little bit, you'll find that it just might open. To teaching them to to make sure to try things. You never know where it will lead. You never know what trying out for this running for student government or trying out for a play or whatever it is, where that might take you, even though you you're not necessarily on that route. And so I, I think we just have to open up our minds, open up our perspective and give opportunity a chance. Beautiful. And it's well said in terms of those things. Let me just pause for a second. Coach Cole, I mean, I can't thank you enough. I'm, I'm so grateful that we've had a chance to connect again during your career and just after your career. And I know this isn't the last time that we'll have you on the podcast, but thanks so much for sharing with us. Oh, I enjoy it always, Chris. I just appreciate the service you provide for coaches. And I think a lot of non-coaches too. I know people who aren't in sports at all who listen to your podcast, because again, as we discussed throughout the past hour or however long it's been, those those skill sets are are they just jump over boundaries and and they're applicable to all kinds of things. So keep putting that good stuff out in the world. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the basketball podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.